welcome to episode 73 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Basie and I'm none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Today we're honoured to have with us one of Britain's leading playwrights, Sir David Hare, who's also of course a screenwriter and a theatre and film director. He doesn't really need an introduction, but just in case you need reminding, he's written over 40 full-length plays. His career took off in 1970 with his first play, Slag, at the Hampstead Theatre, and within a year he'd arrived at the National, which went on stage 19 of his plays. In 1978, his play Plenty was heavily panned by London critics, so thinking his career was over, he took off for America. But Plenty, of course, went on to become a movie in 1985, packed with stars like Meryl Streep, Charles Dance, Ian McKellen, John Gielgud, Hugh Laurie, Sam Neill and Tracy Ullman. Yes, now, I remember that film very well because I used to make Tracy Ullman's pop videos and I'd worked on a movie with her. So when she went off to America to shoot Plenty, I looked after her Yorkshire Terrier, Binky <laughs> That's Beaumont. hilarious. So there's a nice bit of podcast <laughs> trivia for you this morning. Anyway... David Hare was, of course, eventually welcomed back with open arms and went on to write his famous trilogy about British institutions, Racing Demon, Murmuring Judges and The Absence of War. His play Skylight won the 1996 Olivier Award for Play of the Year and the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best Foreign Play. And I remember very clearly seeing Richard Eyre's production at the Cottesloe with Michael Gambon and his character, Tom Sargent, reminded me so much of my father and was so vividly true to life, I honestly thought, David, that you must have known him. Anyway, uh, continue, let's carry on. So we said to David before recording this po podcast that we had a long introduction, and David said, do I have to listen to it? And I'm beginning to feel a bit of sympathy because it goes on and on and on. So I think we should just get straight into it because we have been to see David's latest play, Straight Line Crazy at the Bridge Theatre, directed by Nicholas Heitner who has also been on our podcast. It stars Rafe Fiennes as Robert Moses. So, David, we want to start with you telling our listeners who Robert Moses was. If you drive on anything in New York State, which is called an expressway, then Robert Moses built it. He built 670-something miles of expressway. He also built Jones Beach. He built Lincoln Center, which is the big arts center on the west side. He... Got, he did the deal for the land for the UN. He didn't actually build the UN, but it was him who got the UN to New York. Um, he had a huge effect building essentially a grid in New York, which became the model for cities all over, the, um, all over America. And if it is now impossible to live in any American city except San Francisco or New York without a car, that is basically because Robert Moses saw the car as the future and planned the city of New York around the mobility provided by the car. He loathed public transport. He was anti-train, anti-bus, and he basically um, set out an, an idea of what a, a modern city should be. And he was extremely highfalutin. He was very, very, very well educated. He claimed to have been president of the Oxford Union, though that is, I gather, contested, in other words, it may turn out he was just president of the students' union in his college, but he always said he was president of the Oxford Union. And his illusions were all classical. His favorite writer was Socrates. Uh, he compared himself with Haussmann in Paris, and he compared himself with the builders of the pyramids. Gosh, I mean, how extraordinary, because it, what, it was, what he was doing was not exactly lovely, was it? 
And and I'm interested that you say he hated public transport. Why? Sounds like a proper Tory to me. <laughs> he just had this. Well, he's 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 a very complicated man politically because in the first act of the play, what I try to show is that he actually was an idealist about opening up the lives of the people who lived in the tenements. Long Island in those days was in the control of the aristocracy, great families who controlled the land and deliberately let the roads fall into disrepair because the people who live in the Hamptons don't want the population coming to that part of the country. They want to keep the Hamptons, in quotes, nice. And it was Robert Moses who opened it up and he opened it up for genuinely democratic reasons because he wanted to give people a day at the beach. He also invented the idea of the state park. There were already national parks, but he invented the state park. And that was a place where people could go and hike. The word park makes it sound like our parks, which are, you know, just a few, couple of miles. But these are places where you can walk all day. But he believed the car was the means of opening the place up. And unfortunately, he stuck with that idea, even as views about the car began to change in the 1950s and 60s. And I think what I thought was so incredibly interesting about this play is the whole concept of nimbyism. When does nimbyism become actually about not just being in your backyard, but really something that is going to be very destructive to a city? And I think that's what you got at so brilliantly. So tell us who Jane Jacobs was. One of Moses' plans was to build expressways across Manhattan because he said people should be able to traverse Manhattan without being impeded. And to do that, he needed to build a slip road right through one of the most treasured, you know, communal places in New York, which is Washington Square. And so a Washington Square movement grew up in which Jane Jacobs, who I dramatize in the play, was not actually the leader of that movement. She was simply a member of that movement. But out of that movement came her great seminal book which is called The Death and Life of American Cities and that is a book which argues that all urban planning is wrong and that cities owe their authenticity to what she calls eyes on the street. In other words you must have street life in order to have a successful city and so building slabs for people to live in in, in disinherited areas outside the main city and planning for them she argued was always disastrous. And from this point of view, she attracted people of all political persuasions. She attracted left-wing people who believed in community and believed in keeping the nice places and the mixed communities going together. But she also attracted the libertarians in America, who of course were anti-government and anti-state planning. And what she was really concerned about was the right of people to create their own environment rather than have environments imposed on them. Moses said, the public never know what they want until they're given it. You just impose it on them and then they will like it when they get it. Jane Jacobs believed the very opposite. And this is a very, very interesting argument, I think. Well, I couldn't agree more. And, and it's got such relevance for London today. So I'm really interested in, obviously, where your inspiration came from. I mean, Robert Moses is almost like a symbol of all the planning that's happening around us in London at breakneck speed and completely uglifying and changing it. Was your inspiration from him or from what's going on right now? No, I've, I've always liked um, monsters in the, <laughs> the theatre. I love them. 
And I, you know, am the proud co-author of Pravda, which was the first attempt to portray the, the generation of lunatic newspaper owners, Rupert Murdoch, um, um, Robert Maxwell, you know, Conrad Black, who ended up in jail. You know, these huge figures who are impose themselves and impose their ideas on everyone around them. I've always, I've always loved those people theatrically. And Rafe Fiennes and I did an adaptation of Ibsen's, um, I did the adaptation, Rafe played the master builder in uh, a, an Ibsen play that we, di we did at the Old Vic in which Rafe was absolutely extraordinary. And um, so to move, on, <laughs> to move on to Robert Moses from Ibsen's heroes is, is not a, a big step. Rafe Fiennes appears in a lot of your plays. I mean, you're, draw, you, you're collaborators, basically. Yeah, we're collaborators, but in different ways. Not, we, we've worked, I think, eight or eight or nine times together. Uh, I wrote a movie about um, Rudolf Nureyev that he wanted to make, so he came to me to write that. He did a wonderful version of Ivanov, which I adapted. He was in my Warwicka trilogy with Bill Nye. And uh, we just worked very, very happily together. I hate this thing. I hate this thing where people say that it makes you lazy to work with the same people all the time. I feel the exact opposite. That to start on the first day already knowing somebody is like a leg up. You're you're starting, um, you know, already knowing each other, and off you go, challenging each other to 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 do better this time. You know, I've worked with Judy Dench over and over. I've worked with Bill Nye over and over. I've worked with Kerry Mulligan. And I just, I like working with the same actors because I think you, you move on together. I was talking to Zadie Smith the other day who just, Zadie Smith just became a playwright for the first time. And she had a play on and she was just glowing with pleasure at what an actor can bring to what you have imagined. Because they're gonna bring something extra that you haven't thought about. And so I always think poets and novelists are missing the fun of writing. It's interesting that you're, I mean, there are two thoughts. One is obviously your, your book is inspired by presumably Robert Caro's amazing biography of Robert Moses. My feelings about America were entirely formed by the fact that I went when I was 17. And I travelled around America when I was 17. And I happened to stay with Virginia Durr and Clifford Durr, who were the lawyers who represented Rosa Parks in that, you know, most important of all civil rights cases. That was the woman who insisted on sitting in the back of the bus. And so I was in a house in um, Georgia, sitting, having dinner with Virginia and Clifford and the phone went. And suddenly, you know, I heard Virginia from the other room saying, but Lyndon, what are you doing in Vietnam? And it just, you know, when I later heard Johnson, and she was a school teacher who had known Johnson in his days in Texas, they'd been brought up together. And when I later heard Johnson say, oh, I didn't know what I was getting into in Vietnam, this was 1965, I went, well, actually, I heard somebody say to you, but Lyndon, <laughs> what are you doing in Vietnam? But I hit there a streak of American radicalism uh, that I just find almost the most um, moving, one of the most moving strains of my life. And that music that American radicals like Martin Luther King made just still moves me. It still brings tears to my eyes. Robert, Robert Kennedy can still bring tears to my eyes. 
because that strain in American idealism, I think is very beautiful. And I'm not much moved by the anti-Americanism of the left in Europe. I, I, the, the America, like our country, is a country you know, with many points of view and at war with itself about many things. And the crude anti-Americanism of the left in Europe is not something I've ever gone along with. And also I thought, uh, this may sound uh, an odd thing to say uh, and the wrong thing to say, but I also thought your play was about women as well, because Moses oh, yeah. is surrounded by three powerful women play character uh, uh, in this play. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's, no, it's no coincidence. The leader of the Washington Square movement was Shirley Hayes. Shirley Hayes was a woman. And then he, he lost three big fights in the 1950s. And the second fight he lost was to women who, when he wanted to remove a playground from Central Park and replace it with a parking lot. And, uh, you know, it was the posh women, the, the upper class women of the Upper East Side who then organized against him. Look, what for goodness sake, what are the other, you know, radical books of the time? There's Rachel Carson, way, way, way ahead of her time, also in the 1950s, writing, writing Silent Spring about the environment. And then you also have Kate Millett at that same time. And, the, you know, it, it is women who are producing the, the, the progressive thinking if you could take us inside the mind of a playwright, how do you choose your subjects? What inspires you? They're, they're social commentary. No, no, no. It's, it's mysterious. It's deeply, it, it, it is no different for me than for a painter, which is you don't really know what you're, why you choose subject matter. Uh, the, the, the fancy way of saying it is that it chooses you. But I don't know, you know, would a photographer say that something was, as it were, photogenic? All I can tell you is that certain things seem dramagenic. Now, why that is, I really don't know. And uh, if I, 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 don't, I don't really want to know. Uh, you know, when I, when I went to Israel, Palestine... And, oh, I was just going to talk to you about Dolore, Via Dolorosa. Yes. Yeah, well, that, there, I go, to Via, I go to Israel, Palestine. I cannot get it down fast enough. I'm, I'm just every day going, I've got to write about this. I've got to write about this. Now, and it was a one-man show where I acted. Somebody then said to me, will you come to Northern Ireland and do Northern Ireland? As, as though it were a process that you could apply to anywhere. <laughs> and I'd do my play about being in Northern Ireland. And I, I couldn't explain. I can't tell you why Israel-Palestine turns me on theatrically and Northern Ireland doesn't. Did you know as a young man, I want to write plays? Or did you think, I want to write novels and then you came to plays or... No, I was a theatre director running a little theatre group and nobody, um, we, somebody failed to deliver a play. So I wrote one very quickly, in four days actually, I wrote an hour-long play. And I was lucky, I got an agent straight away who came to see it and gave it to Michael Codron, who was then the most, um, you know, the most important producer of straight plays in the West End. And he immediately commissioned a play from me. So I discovered I have a, had a talent that I didn't for a second imagine I had. And the basic talent was the ability to write dialogue that actors wanted to speak. Because if you can't do that, you sort of are in the wrong job. And um, so once I knew I had that, but I don't think I would have done it. I, I'm ashamed to say, I don't think I'd have done it out of personal conviction. I did it because a powerful West End producer was telling me I was good at it.
but I can't say I felt that inside myself. Can, can we go on to the critics now? Because um, you left because the critics were so rude about plenty, and you haven't always had an easy time with, with the critics. Yeah, I, 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 I had a very, very rough time with the critics in the first 10 years of my life. And it was a very adversarial relationship. And uh, they, they seemed to be threatening my livelihood. In other words, it seemed, it seemed to me very, very, very unlikely I could survive. And uh, fortunately, I had a wonderful producer in Peter Hall. And when he put Plenty on, the board wanted to take the play off and said to Peter, you can't go on running Plenty because it's had such bad reviews. And Peter said, well, I don't understand what the subsidised theatre is for. But if, if we put on work which we believe is good, but the, the critics or the public don't, um, surely that is the point of subsidised theatre. I haven't heard anyone express that view for 30 or 40 years now. In other words, I'm afraid subsidised theatre has become box office crazy. But the, the idea now of an avant-garde is almost gone. And this is making for some very dull theatre. It's making for theatre which tells you what you already believe and you go out confirmed in what it is you believe. But the, we all, uh, of my generation, believe, we, we all saw failure, you know, Waiting for Godot had been badly received, Look Back in Anger had been badly received, The Birthday Party had been catastrophically received, Saved had been appallingly received, so that all the plays we most respected and admired, it was almost a mark, you know, failure was a, was, a, was a mark of integrity, it was a mark of authenticity, and it was a mark of excellence. But expressing that point of view now in the 21st century, the culture has changed completely. What was the charge, what was the charge against you by the critics? What did they not like about David Hare's plays in the 70s? Oh, you know, the, the theatre was fun and was meant to be a place of entertainment. Uh, you know, <laughs> there was a wonderful moment when Bernard Levin, who was my chief prosecutor. Oh, was he? And he was on my, he was on my case for 20 years. And, and, and he just was after me. And he, he, he eventually said, which I was very, very happy with, he said, um, David Hare's plays are of no more value than Francis Bacon's paintings. And he said, and I don't expect them to live any longer than Francis Bacon's paintings. And I thought, well, that is a judgment I'm very, very happy with. I'll, I'll settle for that. In terms of current playwrights, emerging playwrights, or, I mean, you would presumably rate people like James Graham. I mean, there's, oh, very there's, much. there are still pioneering new playwrights emerging. Oh, and, yeah. you know, we've got Jerusalem being revived at the moment. Exactly. You know, there are, there are all sorts of wonderful new playwrights. I wish I felt that sometimes producers had the same risk-taking zest. We, I, I was lucky to live through a period of extraordinary producers, really good. Richard Eyre, you've already mentioned, was a wonderful producer. And Richard stood by the playwrights that he believed in. And I don't always feel from producers now, I, 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 I sense a lot of producers who are just sniffing around looking for the next hit. Whereas, you know, the Royal Court Theatre in those days was a theatre where, say, George Devine, it was, it was John Osborne, uh, you know, Bill Gaskell believed in Edward Bond, Max Stafford Clark believed in Carol Churchill. And in each case, the artistic director was saying, this is the voice you really have to listen to. This, this is the person we, we believe in. 
who's who's expressing something nobody else is expressing. And some of that passion about, I believe in this writer and I want, I, I, I don't think it's as easy for young writers to, to find that backup that was offered to us so easily in the way Peter Hall backed me up. You know. So what lured you back to England then after you'd, you'd, you'd gone off to America? What, what was the moment at which you decided, I'm going to risk Bernard Levin's wrath and come back? I think really Plenty was a play that, you know, that in which I said what I really wanted to say. And so, it, you know, once I'd written that play, I, I did genuinely think, oh, maybe I've finished. Maybe, maybe I've, maybe that's it. <laughs> maybe that's what I want to, um, what I'm, what I'm going to write about and that I'm, I'm done. So I had a few years in which they were barren years. And that, that was also, it coincided with the end of my first marriage, which wasn't a very easy time. And so those two things together were the nearest I've had to a period of being a writer. So what, what was the thing you first wrote to come back after that? I wrote a play called The Map of the World, which was about aid to the third world. And uh, I did that for the Adelaide Festival. And it was the sheer wildness of being asked to Adelaide. <laughs> and I thought, well, if I premiere a play 12,000 miles away from London, and, you know, nobody will know if it's a complete disaster. And at the first preview, in walked Michael Coveney from the Financial Times and Michael Billington from The Guardian, both of whom who had flown 12,000 miles to see this play. And I realised, oh, I see, there's, there's no escape. And is there a difference between writing a play and writing a film script? Completely. When I write a play, I retain my copyright. If I am un unhappy, I have the right to take the play off. I, it, will, it will not happen without my approval. And if a director wants to change something in the text, they cannot change it without my permission. I own the copyright. If I'm on a movie, I'm a hired hand. I sell my labor. The copyright is owned by the production company. So this is an immense difference in status and an immense difference in, proce difference in process. So the, the principal difference, I always warn young writers, <laughs> is not artistic, it's legal. It, and, and they have the right to do what they want with the work you, you, you sell them. On the last couple of films I've worked, I believe that I've spent 10 times as long defending my script as I have writing it. I think that it, I've lawyered my script. I've become an advocate for my script. You know, the reason I've made this choice is this. The reason I made that. In other words, I spent hours in explanation at meetings and really, if you're not up for that, film writing is a very, very, it, it, it's a mugs game. Now, what we need to do is segue into our final section, which is the political row bit. Because this is, I think, probably the 10th anniversary of our great row. We were at a dinner hosted by David Ambrose, and David was a guest, and I was there as the arts minister. And it was a very, very boring dinner. And I was sitting next to, I think it was Lucy Preble. I really hope I'm not going to libel her. Who was who was sweetness and light and very, very well behaved. And we talked about Surrey. And then halfway through the dinner, David, who was sitting opposite me, suddenly shouted out, you have destroyed the arts, which was a brilliant moment because at that point, everything kicked off. And the bit where I'm worried about the libel is I'm convinced at that point, Lucy Preble turned around and said, yes, you've destroyed the arts. <laughs> so tell us <laughs> without, 
without re rehearsing the round ten years ago. What's your view today of the state of the art? <laughs> As I'm now no longer the arts minister, you can say what you like. <laughs> well, you've, you know, that is just total piece of misremembering, Ed. <laughs> It was not a dinner at David Ambrose's. It was no, a dinner. Was it was it was something called the Dramatist Club, yeah, yeah. which I have to say is an extremely um, distinguished old club, which I think was founded by Pinero, and you know, and it is a gathering of dramatists. And it is true that uh, you know, I, I, you were in that phase in which you you kept, as, as all those conservative governments did, kept saying money is not the answer. <laughs> it is not a question of throwing money at things. And I think probably I was up to here with that argument by then. You know, every time somebody establishes themselves as a leader of a political party, they say they are forced by somebody to meet people from the arts. I've done it so often and it is such a waste of time. And, you know, I was asked to meet Cameron and I just went, it is completely pointless. I know that when Cameron is prime minister, the last thing he's going to be worried about is art subsidy. He just wants, you know, you know. obviously with this government, there is an issue and there's a big issue. And that, that is obviously going to be the privatization of Channel 4. Uh, but, you know, we may well be living in the dog days of this government. I'm sure you know much more about this than I do. But it doesn't look like a government that's going to stagger on much longer. The whole project of let us get private sponsorship to compensate for lack of public sponsorship has been proved not to work. You know, I've heard the director of the Leeds Playhouse just saying we have been to every single business in Leeds to try and get private sponsorship. There is nobody. There are no more businesses we can try in Yorkshire for private sponsorship. So this idea that there is some magic solution to public funding to come from private sponsorship. You know, again, you know, I talked earlier about America. In America, there is this wonderful sense of philanthropy in your own lifetime. You give back a great deal of what you've earned because you expect to rise very fast. Now, traditionally, the aristocracy in this country does not believe that. The aristocracy in this country believes you hold on to everything you've got and your job is to do what they call hand on what you inherited. And so this whole attempt by conservative governments to encourage private philanthropy, you know, it, it's fighting a, a deep cultural problem in, the, in, in, in Britain. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think that um, philanthropy is not uh, taken as seriously in the UK as it is in America. It's a completely different cultural tradition. And there, I mean, you know, we could go on for hours about this and I, uh, you know, uh, I've always said the arts are not taken seriously in this country by politicians and they fail to appreciate the extraordinary golden gift they have uh, sitting next to them. But it is an odd thing, you know, if you want to raise money for education or health, you know, people will be running marathons left, right and centre. But if you want to run, raise it for a theatre, people aren't interested. Well, that's rather depressing. <laughs> so what next, David? <laughs> what next? Uh, I'm, I'm actually working with another writer, which is something I haven't done for 35 years. Um, I'm working with Anna Winger, who is the wonderful writer of Unorthodox. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes, loved oh, yes. Unorthodox. And, yeah. and uh, she had a British subject and she, she, she wrote it. She wrote the pilot for a series um, on a British subject and she decided that she needed a British writer. And uh, she turned to me to help her. 
and I haven't really written with anybody else and I'm loving writing with her. It's actually incredibly refreshing. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. It was Not at all. Very thank kind you. of you to give it's us lovely. the time. Not at all. It's lovely to talk to you. Monday the 9th of May marks the start of London's Craft Week. So listen in next Sunday as we're going to be celebrating it with its founder, Guy Salter, OBE, and with Rosalind McKeever, who's one of the co-curators of the Fashioning Masculinities exhibition now on at the V&A. There's lots going on around London, so we'll be telling you all about that next Sunday. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. But don't forget that the latest edition of Country and Townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and Waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with the 2022 edition of Great British Brands. You can be found at countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, with all the latest news on interiors from Carol Annette. And just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter and to the Great British Brands Monthly. We love your feedback, so keep it coming to charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week.